Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Shilpa Gupta, Director of Gentourinary Medical Oncology at Tossig Cancer Institute and co-leader of the Gentourinary Oncology Program at Cleveland Clinic Cancer Center. Shilpa was previously a guest on this podcast to discuss breakthroughs in bladder cancer research, and that episode is still available for you to listen to. Today, she is here to talk to us about research presented at the ASCO meeting this year, specifically MainCAV and platinum ineligibility in metastatic urothelial cancer. So welcome back, Shilpa. Thank you, Del. Thanks for having me. Really delighted to be here. Absolutely. So gave a little bit about your titles here, but what is it you do here? Give us a little background. So I've been here now for uh, three years, Dale, and uh, I'm a genitourinary medical oncologist. Uh, I treat all patients with GU cancers, but my primary focus of research uh, and interest is bladder cancer. And um, so I treat a lot of patients with uh, different stages of bladder cancer, and I do a lot of clinical and translational research. Very good. Well, we're going to talk about research, and we're going to talk about this trial called MainCAV. So give us a little bit of, of an idea. What, what is this MainCAV trial? What, what, what are we trying to, uh, to address with this trial? So the MainCAV trial uh, is a trial that I'm leading through the NCI uh, Alliance Cooperative Group. It's, it's uh, uh, a trial that has really evolved with the standard of care evolution. You know, for metastatic uh, urothelial cancer patients in the past, after they received platinum-based chemotherapy, if they had a response or stable disease, we just used to watch them until they progressed when immunotherapy was an option uh, from 2016 onwards. And a landmark study, the Javelin Bladder 100 trial that was presented in 2020, showed that when these patients who get platinum-based chemotherapy as frontline therapy and, and have a response or stable disease, when they got evalumab immunotherapy compared to just best supportive care, they had an improvement in overall survival by over seven months. And uh, that led us to thinking like how we can further push the envelope and intensify the evalumab backbone. So initially this trial uh, was being developed as like a frontline therapy approach. And then we modified it to uh, make it like maintenance uh, trial where patients who get frontline platinum-based chemotherapy and then are candidates to receive evalumab. We are randomizing uh, them to receive evalumab as the standard of care versus evalumab and uh, an oral uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor, cabozantinib. There's a lot of synergy between cabozantinib and immunotherapy agents in urothelial cancer. There's plenty of data and we wanted to tap onto that approach. These drugs are not cross-resistant and um, so that's the idea behind this trial. So it's about like a 654 patient trial. It's already activated in the U.S. this year. It'll get activated in the Canadian clinical trials group next year. And uh, the primary endpoint is overall survival. Excellent. So we kind of have an issue in oncology. It seems that patients always wonder, when am I going to be done with treatment? I mean, they, they'll take antihypertensives for 20 years, but they want to know, when am I done with this treatment? 
how receptive are patients to this whole concept of maintenance therapy? Is that, has that been a barrier at all? Yeah, so that's a great question, uh, Dale. So the maintenance therapy, the original approval of Evalumab, there was no end date to it. And it's an every two-week infusion and does become burdensome, you know, with a lot of uh, other issues patients face. So patients like the general idea of trying to maintain responses to their cancer, uh, but at some point, you know, when they're near two-year mark and they're doing really well, we talk to them about stopping. However, uh, to address this exact question, in our main CAF trial, we put an end date of maximum treatment of two years for both the arms because we don't think that patients need to be treated beyond two years. There needs to be an end date, and that's the whole idea behind immunotherapy. So I think um, you're right, you know, with... Treatments that are every two-week infusions, it is a big uh, barrier financially as well as physically. What, uh, and I guess think sometimes it takes a while for things to catch on. Um, bladder cancer is not horribly common, and a lot of people get treated in the community. Um, from a maintenance standpoint, you know, when the data was available that maintenance therapy might help, is it being adopted? Are people getting maintenance therapy? Yeah, people are getting uh, maintenance therapy, and we have actually looked at it in a systematic way with a trial we also presented at ASCO called Paradigm Study, where we actually interviewed community and academic oncologists, but mainly community oncologists, to see what their perceptions were revolving around frontline therapies and how much they were utilizing maintenance. So historically, you know, over 60% patients never saw second line therapy in bladder cancer. But based on what we found, like, you know, over 90% people were aware of and using maintenance therapy and talking to their patients about it. That's great. This is being done through a cooperative group. Tell us a little bit about um, kind of that mechanism, just for people who might not be aware. Yeah, so it's a really great mechanism. Uh, You know, it's the National Cancer Institute has several cooperative groups uh, like the SWOG, uh, which we are part of, the Alliance Cooperative Group, ECOG-ECRIN, and the Alliance previously used to be the CLGB group. And this trial, we are running through them. I mean, you know, that's a great mechanism to get your own idea to fruition and really get the support of the NCI to launch it at hundreds and hundreds of sites and then even collaborate with international cooperative groups like we are doing. So I'll say the process was a great learning experience for me because the whole concept from the idea and evolution did take around three years to finally get to see the light of the day, but it happened at the right time, right when Evalumab got approved and our study was kind of the first in the space but um, I'll say the leadership and the mentors we have in these cooperative groups really provide great feedback and help us take our ideas and get feedback and work on it. And that whole experience also to go through the NCI GU steering committee, you know, with their feedback and polish the protocol. And that was a great learning experience for me. I don't think a lot of people realize the magnitude of, of effort that goes into some of these trials. And since this is, we, we don't have results to talk about yet because this is a, an ongoing trial. So just really more about logistics here. What, what, what's involved here? You, you, number of sites, you're talking about international sites. I mean, 
what all what all's involved? Um, how many sites are we looking at? How many investigators? How yeah? How, how big of an effort is this? I don't think a lot of people realize the work yeah. that goes into the, getting right these now. You know, we have over like one fifty sites activated in the U.S. A lot of them are still getting activated, but once all the sites are up uh, and are on board, we usually have over 600, 700 sites because a lot of these trials through the cooperative groups, you know, the, the good thing about these are these are not as complicated as some of our other, you know, uh, early phase trials as well as they rely mainly on standard of care. So, you know, the financial aspect of that is not to do unnecessary blood work and um, things like that. So, we rely a lot on our community partners. So we have a community uh, champion for this trial. They'll propagate it to open at a lot of sites. For example, at Cleveland Clinic, we've opened it at all our community sites also. So I think nationally, we really, um, it's important that more and more sites get on board because every patient counts. And then internationally, we are teaming with Canada where Evalumab also got approved and they also pay a lot of importance to financial aspects, treatment durations, and they were very excited to uh, get this trial open because, you know, they uh, have access to Evalumab and they want to uh, offer um, treatments uh, which can intensify that. They've been involved in the original Javelin Bladder 100 trial too. But yeah, it's a lot of effort to try to, you know, as the PI, uh, you know, it's our job to get the word out there, have more and more sites get on board answer all the questions about eligibility that come to us, you know, every day by email, which, uh, you know, if the, something is not clear in the protocol. And at the same time, you know, based on the sites that are getting started, they have feedback. We make notes to come up with an amendment in future. So I would say it's all a great learning experience to be involved in every aspect of leading such a large trial. And I guess uh, for anyone who might be listening, it's important to realize these trials aren't necessarily just at big centers, that they may be available locally and and maybe uh, just giving a standard therapy might not be the best option. Absolutely. What else is exciting right now in this space? So this is certainly kind of a, a, a very novel approach. What else is currently being studied that's, uh, that's interesting? So yeah, I think the uh, treatment paradigm is really evolving in bladder cancer and frontline therapy is going through a lot of evolution. You know, platinums have been the backbone forever. Uh, unlike lung cancer, platinums and immunotherapy combination has not shown to be better than platinums. But at the ESMO meeting that is happening right now, we'll see more data coming from antibody drug conjugate and fortumavidontin and pembrolizumab frontline combination in cisplatin ineligible patients. And um, we at the clinic also have a phase three trial looking at that combination versus platinum followed by maintenance immunotherapy. So I think that is a trial we are really keen to see what the results show sometime next year. And uh, in general, the antibody drug conjugates are really um, very uh, you know hot right now based on the activity that they're showing. And I guess back to briefly this MainCAV trial, um, when do we expect that we'll have an answer? You know, we have built in an interim analysis. So I think once we have a set number of patients enrolled to go over the safety data because cabozantinib has not been combined with the Valumab before. So I would think sometime next year, we'll have a good magnitude of patients enrolled, especially after our Canadian friends get on board. And then that way, at least you have an initial idea. Yes. Continuing the trial makes good sense. Yeah. So 
Um, and of course, I'm sure you get the question all the time for people enrolling in the trial. Any um, any early uh, hunch on if it's been helpful or not? It's way too early, Dale. I wish oh, I, I know. That's why I thought I asked the question, <laughs> just because I know you get it all the time. Right, right, right. You mentioned a a uh, something called platinum ineligibility, and that's another thing I know you've uh, had interested in, sort of that. What exactly is is that mean, and and kind of explain that to us? So um, you know how in um, bladder cancer, our patients' median age is in the seventies, and cisplatin has been the standard of care, but a whole lot of patients are not eligible to receive cisplatin, and this criteria was developed. Uh, by Dr. Galsky uh, many years ago, you know, how to identify patients who can't get cisplatin. So some of the key factors were creatinine clearance less than 60 or um, hearing loss greater than grade two, heart failure, uh, or, um, you know, just poor equoc performance status and bad peripheral neuropathy. So that guided us as to if these patients can't get cisplatin, we'll offer them carboplatin. So that was a rough guide for trial enrollment and whatnot. And then a um, couple of years ago, uh, immunotherapy, you know, when they were studying frontline pembrolizumab and atezolizumab in this patient population that cannot get cisplatin, FDA um, put uh, a label restriction based on phase three interim data that patients were doing worse with single agent immunotherapy as compared to carboplatin and they restricted it to use it only for platinum ineligible patients, that is those who can't get carboplatin or those who have tumors with high PDL one But there was no definition for who can't get carboplatin. It's just investigator's discretion. So we initially actually took on this effort and did a survey of medical oncologists treating bladder cancer in the US, around 60 of those two. You know, we threw several questions like what is your threshold for deeming someone not eligible for carboplatin, gave them a variety of ranges like 60, 55, 45, and things like that. And then peripheral neuropathy, equal performance status, age, hearing loss, and heart failure. And we found that, you know, majority uh, of the uh, respondents thought creatinine clearance of 30 is a good cutoff for deeming somebody carboplatin ineligible. And age did not really matter. Hearing loss did not really matter. Equal performance status three or higher, peripheral neuropathy grade two or higher. And that became kind of a rough guide. And now with so much changes, you know, with enfortumavidont and pembrolizumab in the front line, some data, and we wanted to also see uh, what people are doing after Evalumab got approved. So we revisited this survey this year and sent out the same questions and asked what they're doing for frontline. Has carboplatin used gone up based on the maintenance evalumab data? And we found that uh, everybody is using maintenance immunotherapy. And as far as the criteria go, um, majority still said that creatinine clearance of 30 is the cutoff, peripheral neuropathy grade two or higher, ECOC performance status grade three or higher, and significant heart failure. So any one of these criteria we have just provided like a clinical decision-making tool to consider it at someone not able to get carboplatin. Because the problem is, you know, when we are deeming patients who can get carboplatin as platinum ineligible, we are uh, doing them a disservice because single agent immunotherapy is not as good as carbo followed by immunotherapy. So the whole idea is to avoid overcalling of these platinum ineligible patient. I want to make sure that people that can actually benefit from carbo get it. 
get carbo, yeah. Right, correct. Um, from a dissemination of that information, I know you've presented about this, but um, has, it does, is this getting incorporated into guidelines or FDA guidance? or? We're, we're, so we are uh, writing up the, you know, we're working on uh, uh, writing the consensus paper right now and, um, you know, just discussing at meetings and also taking it to the next step. We are now doing a similar survey in uh, our European countries to see what the patterns there are. And um, in the EAU guidelines, actually, they refer to uh, these criteria for platinum in the NCC, and it's not a formal part of that. But um, the other thing we are doing is roughly using these criteria to design trials for platinum ineligible patients, and we are involved with that frontline trial. And uh, so, so really directly working on protocol yeah. development, because yes. we, we both know that sometimes the criteria are somewhat arbitrary. Right, right. So that's important, because if you, know, you only have so many things to use, then if you're intentionally not using one, right. that, uh, that's, a, that's kind of a big deal. Yep. What other things do you find exciting in bladder cancer right now, just in general? In general, I think a lot of excitement about um, the localized bladder cancer treatment with immunotherapy, antibody drug conjugates, incorporating more multidisciplinary care for patients who could get bladder preservation and don't necessarily need surgery, and also how to improve outcomes with surgery with perioperative therapy. So I think we're working a lot with in our multidisciplinary teams to see how we can improve outcomes of these patients with therapies. Well, very well done. Great to see you leading such an important trial, trying to re, uh, retool how we think about how to use our drugs, which is really, really important. So great insights. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Dale. Thanks. Uh, delighted to be here. And thanks at all, as always. To make a direct online referral to our Tosic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash cancer advances podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.